If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we have been in, and we're concluding today, this series called Life in Babylon. And we've been talking about this idea of exile, life as an outsider, life uh, as, as a citizen uh, of a different kingdom, of a different city. And, and we've been saying that when, when you become a Christian, you immediately gain this kind of dual citizenship where you are, of course, a citizen of whatever place you live in. So we are citizens of the United States or citizens of Atlanta. We have certain responsibilities. We have certain connections here. Uh, We obviously work in a career. Uh, We have jobs. We're part of gyms. We live in a community, just as Rachel was talking about. So we're citizens of some sort of local or uh, worldly kingdom. But, But more fundamentally, if you are in Christ... You are a citizen of his kingdom. You are a citizen of what Augustine called the city of God. You are part of God's people. That is your primary home. That is your fundamental home. And so what that means, if we take that seriously, what that means is that we're never really at home in Atlanta. We're never really at home in the city of God. We're exiles. We're strangers. We're sojourners. And if we believe that, if we really get that, if that coin really drops, it'll radically change the way we understand ourselves and what identity means, what wealth means, what comfort means. It'll change the way we conduct ourselves in the city of man. And so what we've been doing throughout this series is we've been looking at case studies, case studies from scripture of how The people of God have lived in these kind of contexts, how the people of God have found themselves in these exilic places and how they sought to live in those places as citizens of the kingdom of God, as citizens of the city of God, faithful to God and and living for the good of the kingdom, of the city that they found themselves to be in. How do we work out this dual citizenship? Now, today's passage Peter is writing to the churches of Asia Minor, and he's doing this exact same thing. He, he's, he is saying to them, this is how you need to think. This is how you have to understand yourselves in this exilic kind of dual citizenship way. And, and I think this passage is, is one of the most powerful, one of the most important passages in, in Scripture. It, it has a lot to teach us. So our passage today comes from 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. 1 Peter 2 9 through 12. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and just turn with me. I want to look at this with you. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. Of course, this is Peter. This is the disciple of Jesus, an apostle of the church. And he writes this, you are a chosen race. You, in Christ, you, you followers of Jesus, are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people of Jesus' own possession, God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, and notice the language you use here. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, this is not really your home, abstain from the passage of your flesh, the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot in this passage. Three simple points, though. First of all, what does it mean to be God's people? Number two, what does it mean to be good people? And number three, what does it mean to be visited? What does it mean to be visited? So what does it mean to be God's people? You know, one of the reasons that Christians struggle to understand our true identity, our true identity in the city of God, is that we think about ourselves primarily, fundamentally, as whoever we are in the city of man. We, we kind of see ourselves first as the vice president of the bank or the multimillionaire or the father or the mother or we see ourselves as being popular in this crowd or an influencer of this crowd. We, we, we understand these titles that we have, as important as they are, and I'm not saying that any of those are bad titles. Important as those titles may be, we, we understand those titles to be more fundamental to who we are than titles like child of God or citizen of the city of God. And that's exactly what Peter is correcting here. It's exactly what he's trying to correct the people. He's saying to these people, these Christians in Asia Minor, I don't think you understand who you are. I don't think you understand what it means now to be in Christ. And so he begins to go through this incredible list here in verse nine. Look, he says, you're a chosen race. You're a chosen race. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's, he's referencing the call of Abraham here. God, in, in your Old Testament, really God's redemptive work begins when God calls Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm gonna make you great. I'm gonna make your offspring great. And you and your offspring are going to be a blessing to the whole world. My glory is going to be known. This is what it means to be the chosen race. That my, God is saying, my glory is going to be known through you. I am going to display my glory to the whole world through this race, through this people. And of course, now we know in Christ, that's not a family race. It's a, it's a, it's a, the chosen race is made up of people from every family, from every tribe, from every race, called out in Christ to be the people of God. So he's saying, you, you are the chosen race. You are the family. You are now the people that I am going to display my glory through. And then he kind of doubles down. He says, you're a royal priesthood. Now, what does that mean? You know what a priest is? You know what a priest does? A priest makes an appeal to God on behalf of man. That's what a priest does. Appeal, we go, we go to priests and we say, hey, tell God I'm really not that bad, right? We, we, we go to priests. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is our great high priest, but what Peter is saying here is that you are a priest. In a sense, you are to priest for the whole world. You are to appeal to God. You are to be an intercessor for the whole world. This is what Rachel's video was all about. She's saying, look, I have a heart for these people. They think they're just coming to work out. I'm priesting for them. I'm making an appeal to God for their sake. I'm interceding for them. I'm trying to show them Christ. You are a royal priest. You're a holy nation. Well, here he just goes right at it, right? This is your identity. You are a citizen of the city of God. You're a citizen of this nation. Your identity is fundamentally different. You are no, you're no longer Jews or Romans or Greeks or Americans or Atlantans or black or white or rich or poor, educated or uneducated or Republican or Democrat. You're a holy nation. You're a different kind of people. And that's why none of those places, I want you to hear this, as a Christian, 
None of those identities that the world tries to give us, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, Republican, Democrat, that's why none of those identities will ever feel like home if you're really following Jesus. None of those identities will ever feel like home because that's not who you are. That's not the nation that you're a part of. You're in exile. You know, we've been saying that throughout this whole series that the world feels more secular today than it did 20 to 30 years ago, and it is. It is a more secular world. There was a sense 20 to 30 years ago that we had a greater sense of a Judeo-Christian ethic. But I want you to hear this. Even 20 to 30 years ago, it wasn't like that was our home. We were just exiles in a different kind of place. Now, it may have been a more familiar place, right? In the same way as if you went to England, it might be a little more familiar than if you went to Indonesia. It may have been a more familiar place, but, but neither were our home. <laughs> We were strangers, we're strangers in both places. We're, we're exiles in both places. You're a holy nation. You're a different kind of people. This is not your home. You're a holy nation. And then he says, you, you are a people of God's own possession. This people of God's own possession. That's who you are. God is calling you to himself to know you, to love you, that you may understand him so that you may priest on his behalf. You may declare his glory. Now we skipped over this part you kind of flip up just a couple of verses. I'll roll up here. Peter, I'm not going to walk through all of this, but Peter is giving this temple analogy. It's a very powerful analogy. The temple in the ancient world, in the Hebrew world, was the sacred place. It was a place where heaven and earth came together. I mean, the temple was the place where you would go and have an encounter with God. The Spirit of God himself dwelled among the people in the temple. And so the temple was this place of of awe and reverence. It was a sacred place, the temple, the holy temple. Remember in John 2, there's money changers, and, and where they were in the temple was in the court of the Gentiles. <laughs> they were basically saying, we don't want any Gentiles around us anyway, so let's take up this court and we'll make a market. And that's what they did. They, they took the place that God had set aside for the place for the Gentiles to come and to be close to God, and they made this money-making industry. They were taking the worship of God and making money off of it. And that's why Jesus runs in. Remember the story of John 2? He runs in and he turns the tables over and he drives out uh, all of the, the livestock, all of the, the things that were being sold for, for use in the temple. And of course, people are outraged at this. They don't, they don't know what to think, and they say, what, what have you done, Jesus? What kind of sign can you show us to show that you, kind of ha that you have the kind of authority to do this. And Jesus, of course, famously says, tear this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. And the people were outraged. And they said things like, it took 46 years to build this temple. In fact, when Jesus was being put on trial, they brought this up. They're like, this is the guy that was gonna tear the temple down. They hated this. But of course, what Jesus was saying is this, and I want you to hear this. He was saying that in the power of my death, my death is going to be so powerful that it's going to cancel all sin. All sin and all separation between God and man is going to be put to death in my death. And then, three days later, my resurrection is going to be so powerful that if you look to me in faith, the very Spirit of God can come and dwell in you. Because death has been canceled in my death, and because... Life has been won in my resurrection. Now, by the death and resurrection of Christ, the very power of God and the presence of God can come upon the people of God. And that's exactly what happens at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell 
the people of God. This is what Jesus is talking about here. And so now the temple, this is what Peter is saying. Now the temple is not this static building in Jerusalem that of course no longer exists. What Jesus is saying and what what Peter is saying here is now the temple is the people of God, the living stones of God. You are the place, I want you to hear this. You are the place where heaven and earth meet. You are the place where the spirit of God dwells. Look at verse five, he says, you yourselves are living stones. You're being built up into a spiritual house. You are this priesthood. You are God's people. You are the temple. In the same way, the outer court of the temple was to be this place where the Gentiles could come. That's exactly what Peter is saying about you, that you're this temple that the the Gentiles, that all the nations, that all the outsiders can come and be witnesses to the power of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Why? Why? And then here we see, verse nine, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't you see? Don't you see what God is doing in you? Don't you see who you are? You are ambassadors for God. The world will know who God is through you, through me. Christianity is not just this game we're playing. It's not a nice weekend hobby. You know, it's not like, well, I like to golf, I like to watch football, and I like to go to church. That's not what Christianity is. I like the music, I like the messages. It makes me feel good. I like the people there. Now, that may be where your Christianity starts, and if that's why you're here today and you're just kind of getting to know, maybe you know somebody you like here, I'm glad you're here, but that's not where your faith in God can stay. God has so much more for you that this is not a nice weekend hobby. In fact, the reason that we more primarily see ourselves as the vice president of the bank or the father or the mother or the millionaire or the influencer, the reason we more primarily see ourselves as those things is because we have a small view of who God has called us to be. If you have a low view of who you are in Christ, your faith will always be secondary. It'll always be a weekend hobby because the more important things will be more pressing. But if you get this, this will change your life. You are a chosen race by God. You are a priest, a royal priest chosen by God. You are a holy nation. You are the people of God's possession. You are called to proclaim the excellencies of God who has called you out of darkness and into light. Peter goes on. He says, once you were not a people. I love this passage here. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. What he is saying there is all these other little identities that you have. You think you have an identity. You don't have an identity. And I think it's interesting. I mean, all these people, there are no... There's no Roman citizens anymore. <laughs> All the titles that they may have had, those t- none of those titles exist anymore. None of those people have any authority over anything that's going on in the world right now except for this, that they are the people of God, citizens of an everlasting city. What does it mean to be God's people? Well, it means everything. Secondly, and this is very important, what does it mean to be good people? Look at verse 11. Notice the language Jesus says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain 
from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. And I think it's such a key word. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know, one day, I want you to hear this. If you're in Christ, one day you won't be able to sin. You hear that? If you're in Christ, one day you won't be able to sin. Augustine has this helpful little diagram that he walks us through. It's all in Latin, but I'll translate it for us. He says, you know, before Jesus, before you meet Jesus, you're not able not to sin. <laughs> he, he says, you're non peccare, non peccare. That's the, the Latin for it. You're not able not to sin. Meaning that, you, you know, our problem before Jesus is not just the bad things we do. We know the bad things we do. We all know that we've done bad things. Our problem before Jesus is even the good things we do, to quote Edwards, we do with a disordered love. <laughs> it's, people that don't know the Lord can do good things, but they just do good things with the wrong love, not because they love God, but because they love themselves or because it makes them feel good or because they want to be recognized. <laughs> Our problem with righteousness is not only that we do bad things that we all kind of know are bad things, it's that we do good things with a disordered love. We're not able not to sin. But when we meet Jesus, what Jesus does is he reorders our loves. He shows us the goodness and the beauty of God. He, he opens our heart to really respond to the love of God. And so we, once you know Christ, this is how we all are in this room, once we know Christ in this present age, we are... We're able to sin still, we know that, right? But we also are able to not sin. We, we are able to do what is right. Our heart can be grabbed by the power of God and we can operate out of love for God, which is what we are designed to do. But one day when we're with Jesus and we see him in all of his glory, our souls will be so rightened. We won't be dragged away by all of these other lesser, pettier desires, and we won't even be able to sin. We, we, will be, we will be won over by the glory of God, and we will only be able to follow him. And this is the key to Christian obedience. This is the key to Christian obedience, to, to, to see the glory of God. And in God's glory, and in knowing God's glory, be transformed into his, God's, into his glory. This is what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians, to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, to see the glory of God, to understand the glory of God, to understand the beauty and the worth of God, and to desire God more than you desire anything else. That's, that's when you're moving toward righteousness. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he had this great kind of analogy. He talked about the difference between good advice and good news. I think a lot of people understand Christianity, and there's a lot of worldviews. A lot of worldviews are like this, but some people present Christianity like this as if it's good advice. I have good advice. Follow these principles and you'll be happy. Here's a good biblical principle. And if you follow this and if you do this, then you'll be happy. That's good advice. And let me just tell you, <laughs> good advice is exhausting. Good, ex good advice will wear you out. Good advice will leave you disillusioned. You know, there's a lot of good advice churches out there and people don't ever stick for very long because it's like, okay, I've tried everything and I can't keep it up. I mean, how many of y'all have given up on New Year's resolutions, right? You get this. But he says, but the gospel's not good advice. 
The gospel's good news. Advice is about something that you have to do to try to make something happen. And he gives the analogy of military advisors. And military advisors go out and they say, well, you need to hold this line and you need to attack here and you, know, you need to use this weaponry. And if you do that, you might win. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what military advisors do. But then he talks about the king's, not the king's advisors, but the king's messengers. And he says, the messengers don't go forward with advice. The messengers go forward with news. And news is the king has won. Something has happened. It's not something, it's not if you do something, something might happen. It's something has happened. This is what the gospel is. The, the good news of the gospel is this, is that Jesus has achieved righteousness. It's, it's been achieved. Jesus has paid for it, your sins. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ, you are whole. (laughs) Not you could be whole if you're in Christ and you do this and this and this. That's good advice. It'll exhaust you. It'll wear you out. If you're here for good advice, the Bible's full of good advice, but if you're you're living in good advice, you'll you'll be worn out and you'll you'll quit. It's it's in your strength. The, The difference of the gospel is it's not your strength. It's God's strength. It's good news. Jesus has won. Jesus has defeated sin. Jesus has overcome all things. Live in light of his victory. And that's what Peter is saying here. (laughs) Live in light of who you actually are. You're exiles. You're sojourners. This is not your home. Why? Because you already have a home with God in the heavenly places. Live in light of that. Live toward that. This is why God's people were able to survive exile. You know, how did Daniel, how did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how did they stay faithful to God? How did they stay faithful to God? I mean, where was God? The temple had been torn down. The Babylonians had come in and ransacked them. They were in this faraway place. Why didn't they just start worshiping the Babylonian gods? How did they stay Faithful. How did they not see that the Babylonians were really more powerful than the Jews? How did they stay faithful? You know why? You know why they were faithful? Because they understood they were in exile. They knew that it was never the Babylonians that had defeated God's people. It was God that had sent them to exile. It wasn't the Babylonians that was doing this to them. It was God that was doing that to them. They knew that. That's what the prophets had said. The prophets had said over and over, you're going to be taken. God's going to raise up enemy nations. They're going to take you away. So when it happened, they were like, okay, we should have expected this. We should have thought this was going to happen. And they were able to stay faithful and they were able to hold on to God because they knew that their station of life was an exilic one. It was a temporary one. It's the same thing with Paul. Think about Paul. Paul was beaten and shipwrecked and stoned. He's left for dead. I mean, there's literally a scene in the Bible where Paul is like stoned and thought to be dead. He was imprisoned. He was whipped. Basically, every bad thing that could happen to a person happened to Paul. And what do you see as the the tenor? I mean, just read Paul's letters. What is the tenor of Paul's letter? It's joy. It's joy. It's joy in the Lord. How? How? How did this happen? It's as Paul realized he was in exile. You know, I love the way in Ephesians 2, you know, what does Paul say? He doesn't say, hopefully one day I will be seated with God in the heavenly places. What does he say? He says, I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places. 
It's not because he was actually in a prison. <laughs> but, but he understood his identity, who he really was, to be a citizen of the eternal city of God. And, and so it didn't matter whatever his little station was in the city of man. He believed in good news, don't you see? Do you believe in good news? Do you believe that Jesus has done this for you? That you are with God? That you are victorious in Christ? That you have the hope of the resurrection? Or are you just trying, are you just here for some good advice? Your obedience to God, I want you to hear this. Your obedience to God will be determined by how much you believe this good news and thus trust in the love and the goodness of God in Christ toward you. That's, that will determine your obedience to God. Your obedience to God will not be determined. I want you to hear this. Your obedience to God will not be determined by how wise you think the Bible is. That will not determine how obedient you will be. I can convince you there's so much good advice in the Bible and you'll go out and disobey all day. That's not gonna, that's not, doesn't, that makes a much difference. Your obedience, your faithfulness to God is determined by how much you actually love and trust God and believe that the good news has come to you through what Christ has done for you. I was talking to somebody the other day. This was a Christian. This was a sister in Christ. And she said, man, she was upset uh, about you know, what was happening in an organization she was a part of. And, and she said, if, they, if that group can come in and push their LGBTQ agenda, we should be able to push our heterosexual agenda. And I said to her, Christians don't have a heterosexual agenda. We have a lordship of Jesus agenda. We believe Jesus is Lord of all, of every part of our lives. And so we trust him. We trust him if his ways make sense to us. And we trust him even if his ways seem weird to us. Even if things seem to be going bad in our lives. Even if we have desires that run against his ways. We trust Jesus because we believe that he is Lord and we believe that he is good. And we have seen his goodness and believe in his goodness because of his gospel. The culture wants us to categorize us according to desires, but our objective is this. I want you to do this, that Jesus is Lord. He is to be trusted, and we are citizens of his kingdom. And your obedience, the more you know him, the more you love him, the more you trust him, that is what will determine your obedience, not how wise or good you think his laws are. And because we trust him, this, is, this whole point is what does it mean to be good? <laughs> because we trust him, because we love him, verse 11 we abstain from our passions, the passions of our flesh, which are waging war against our soul. We keep our conduct among the Gentiles, among outsiders, honorable, honorable. Now, what's interesting in this passage, look at the rest of the passage. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's interesting about this passage is that the honorable conduct is being spoken against as evil. 
It's good God-honoring conduct that is being spoken against by the outsiders as evil. I think we kind of get this. I mean, we've been talking about this in in our series here. There was kind of a time when the Judeo-Christian value ethic, again, people around us may not have been Christians. They may have not followed Jesus as Lord, but they kind of agreed with Christian values. They they certainly didn't label God-honoring behavior as evil. But that, of course, is changing. Our culture is becoming more like this First Peter culture here, where we honor God, and yet outsiders speak against us. I want you to hear this. What we cannot let happen in this kind of age is that we, in response to that, would adopt some sort of secular tactic or secular ethic to fight back. What cannot happen is that Christians abandon what is honorable to protect what is honorable. What cannot happen is that Christians abandon an honorable ethic, an honorable behavior, an honorable interaction with other people in order to protect Christian values or a Christian culture. David French wrote an article about a year ago now where he compared Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones. And in each Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, there's a good end, right? And if, you, if you're not familiar with, the, with either of those, it's, it's okay. You, you can kind of get it. There's a good end in both Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones. Now, in Game of Thrones, anything goes to achieve a good end. So you can abandon what is good in order to get what is good in the end. But of course, in Lord of the Rings, the only way to defeat evil is to be pure. The challenge of defeating evil isn't so much evil. It is that you would become evil. That's the challenge of defeating evil. The only way to defeat Mordor was to be pure in the face of the ring. What I'm seeing these days is a lot of secular strategies to fight for Christian convictions. There's no justification for that. Keep your conduct pure and honorable and trust God that he is at work. That's your responsibility. If you believe that your responsibility is to achieve, is to make the world a better place, if you believe that it's you working and not God working, I want you to hear this. You'll always make concessions. Psalm 10, this is interesting. Psalm 10, it says, for the wicked boast of the desires of his soul. One greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. So this is the wicked. This is the person who's renounced the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are there is no God, okay? This is the wicked. But then the psalmist says his ways prosper all times. His ways prosper at all times. If we just have a utilitarian view of God's mission, (laughs) I wanna get what prospers, we will become wicked. We will make concessions. We won't keep our way pure. The the passions of our flesh will rule over us. You have to live in light of who you actually are. You are seated with Christ. 
You are victorious in Christ. And from that place, not for that place, but from that place, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this, of course, leads me to the last point here. What does it mean to be visited? (laughs) What does it mean to be visited? I want you to hear this. You will be visited. There is going to come a day when all, everybody's going to be visited by God. There is going to come a day when all becomes clear. Sometimes that happens in this life, right? We call that regeneration. Some of you have experienced that. I was running from God. God came to me and it became clear. And we see this in our songs, right? I I once was blind, but now I see. So hopefully, prayerfully, you're visited. I, I pray that some of you would be visited by God right now. And you would see him for all of his goodness and worth and glory. There will come a day when you are visited. Now, sometimes this may not happen until, of course, Jesus returns, right? We, we believe that Jesus is coming back. There will be a day when you are visited, and that may come when Jesus returns. It may come the day you die. But there will come a day of visitation when all will be made clear. I want you to hear this. The Christian life is living in light of that day. You've heard me say this before. One day Jesus is going to rule over every square inch of the cosmos and his rule will be known. He is currently ruling. His rule is just not known now. But one day he will rule and his rule will be known and all will live under his authority. The Christian life, the Christian life is living today by faith in the way that you will live that day, right? So living under Jesus's authority today by faith in the one day that everything will one day live under his authority by sight. Is that how you are living? Is that how you're living? And that's exactly, that's exactly how Jesus lived when he was among us. We can do this because that's exactly how Jesus lived when he was among us. He lived with the future in mind. He lived looking forward. He lived for the joy that was set before him. And so he lived obediently. He lived with hope. Even when he was on the cross, he trusted his father. Even when he was dying for our sin, he trusted his father for the joy set before him. And I want you to hear this. That's how you live in Babylon. That's how you live in Babylon. You trust in the joy that is set before you, you trust in the victory of Christ. It's exactly how we started this series in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, when 70 years are complete, when exile is complete, what's the word? I will visit you. And I will fulfill my promises. And I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare, not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. That's how we live in Babylon. One day we'll be with the Lord. I want you to know that one day we are going to be with the Lord and all will be made right. One day there will be no sickness. One day there will be no death. One day there will be no job loss. There will be no political confusion. There will be no family division. One day there will be no dishonesty. There will be no corruption. We won't struggle with what our identity is. 
We won't, we won't struggle with any desires that are contrary to the Lord. One day, all will be right, and all will be made well, and all will be made new by Jesus, and he will reign. And on that day, he will gather all of the saints from all places and all families and all tribes, and you know what we'll do on that day? We'll feast in his presence will feast in the joy of his presence. The Christian life is this. Life in Babylon is this. It's living today. It's scattering out in the city in the light of that day when we will be with the Lord. It's living by faith today until we don't need any faith, until we can live by sight in the very presence of God. And one of the things that Jesus has done for us to help us along the way is to give us this meal, a communion meal, to be reminded of the day that we'll be with the Lord. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread before his disciples, and he broke it. And he said to them, this is my body. Don't you see? (laughs) This is my body. This is how much I love you. I've put your sin to death in my body. And he took a cup and he says, don't you see, this is my blood. By the promise of my shed blood, I have put your sin to death. That's the power of my death. But of course, Jesus promised that he would eat and drink with them again. And what he was promising them then is that he would be raised. By the power of his life, we would live. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we would live in him. And so today, as we celebrate this meal, it is both a look back to the cross. It's a look back to remember whatever, you, whatever kind of guilt and shame you walked in here today with, here's my urge to you. Look to Jesus. Repent and look to Jesus. And know that in him, all of that sin has been paid for and put to death on his cross. And whatever kind of sorrow and struggle and pain that you're enduring right now, be it a sickness, be it some family stress, maybe it's an issue with your parent or a friend, when you take this bread and drink this cup later on, look forward to the day when death will be swallowed up in victory, when all will be made right in Christ and keep walking by faith today. And then scatter well. You're a priest. You're a holy nation. You're a chosen race that we may together proclaim the excellencies of him who has taken us from darkness and brought us into life. And so if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, I I invite you to begin declaring the excellencies of that here in just a few moments. Jesus actually says, whenever we eat this bread and take this cup, we, we declare, we proclaim his kingdom. So our deacons are gonna be passing these elements. And if you're in Christ, I invite you to take them, to hold them. We'll take them together here in just a few moments. Now, if you're not a believer here today, I hope that what you've heard today is not good advice. <laughs> I hope that what you've heard today is not, you know, just a nice little Christian pep talk. I hope what you've heard today is the good news of the gospel, that God loves you, that he's called you out of darkness into light. 
And so I, I invite you today to trust Jesus. Turn from your sin, look to Christ, be found by Jesus. Your life can be changed right now, today, by turning away from what the world says is valuable and toward what is truly valuable in the Lord. Now, if that's true of you, if you're not a believer, you're not ready to trust in the Lord today, that just let the element pass. This is a good moment of contemplation and thought and prayer for you. In fact, I'm gonna be standing in the back and there's actually gonna be a prayer time later. We'd love to pray with you. But let the element pass. It, it, this is a meal for those who are looking to Jesus in faith, desiring to proclaim his kingdom. Let's do that now as we stand, as the elements are passed, and as we sing.